One of the many interesting subplots for Meredith and I in this whole coronavirus pandemic thing that we're living through right now is the way that churches have been responding to it. And there's been a whole lot of variety in that, so please don't hear me as saying all churches do whatever. But a couple of the reactions that have caught our attention are, first, the desperate attempt to justify their existence by pumping out content, 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 kids content, adult content, worship content, devotional content, social media content. And this is a natural response to a certain model of church that's been becoming more and more common in recent decades. What some have identified as the church as provider of religious goods and services model. The church puts on events, programs, resources, and people shop around and consume the resources that they like the best. The main goods and services are consumed by showing up on the church campus, usually on the weekends. But now, people aren't able to actually show up on the church campus. And so, all these products and programs need to be shifted online so that people can consume them there. And so we need to pump out a lot of resources and things for people to consume so that they don't, like, fall out of the habit of consuming our goods and services and go find somebody else's goods and services. It betrays an understanding of the church needing to help people stay busy doing religious activities. And the more crazy the world gets, the more religious activities we need to stay busy doing. The other reaction that's caught my eye is those churches who have either just kept right on meeting in person or are leading a religious liberty crusade against the shadowy government entities that are preventing them from meeting in person. Some large churches near us are in this camp right now. And this is its own particular understanding of church, that being physically together in a large room to watch a band and sermon is essential to church, that no matter how the world might change, we have to keep doing that. And what I think is true of both these reactions in their own way is that they betray a failure to overcome a persistent challenge that the people of God have always faced and that shows up in different but related ways through the years. The people of God regularly forget that what really matters are not religious practices, but God. What really matters are not the activities we do as a part of following Jesus, but Jesus himself. And what makes this tricky is that those things aren't easily separable. We can't love Jesus without some sort of religious expression, without some sort of practices. But at the same time, we can't let those things overtake the person those practices are supposed to be pointing us towards. In Jeremiah 7, we get a story that's actually repeated in chapter 26 of Jeremiah, just in a slightly different form, where Jeremiah is told by God to go stand in the gate of the temple, where worshipers would be coming in and out and the message could not possibly be missed. And the message starts in verse 3. Yahweh armies, Israel's God, has said this, Make your ways and your deeds good, and I'll let you dwell in this place. Don't trust for yourselves in words of falsehood. These buildings are Yahweh's palace, Yahweh's palace, Yahweh's palace. Rather, make your ways and your deeds truly good. If you really make right decisions between an individual and his neighbor, if you don't exploit the alien, orphan, and widow, don't shed an innocent person's blood in this place, and don't follow other gods with evil results for yourselves, then I'll let you dwell in this place, in the country that I gave to your ancestors from of old forever.
There, you're trusting for yourselves in words of falsehood that won't achieve anything. This is something of a new message from what we've seen before in Jeremiah. Up until now, Jeremiah has criticized the people for idolatry, for injustice, for not trusting in Yahweh and instead putting their trust in other gods. But now, Jeremiah says, you are putting your trust, you're looking for safety and security and life in words of falsehood. And what are those false words? These buildings, that is the temple, are Yahweh's palace. And you can just hear Jeremiah mocking people with these words by repeating them. Yahweh's palace, Yahweh's palace, Yahweh's palace. Like, you can say them as much as you want. It doesn't make them true. And we need to unpack this a little bit because aren't those words true? Isn't the temple Yahweh's palace? Isn't it the place where God's presence dwells, where people can come to hear from God and worship God? That's what the people thought. And if that's true, if God's presence dwells here, well then we're safe. Surely God would never let God's own temple be destroyed. In fact, they remember a bit over a century earlier when the armies of Assyria had been turned away. The northern kingdom had fallen, but Jerusalem and Yahweh's palace, the temple, had endured. That must mean something, right? But hold on, Jeremiah says, let me get this straight. If it's really Yahweh you are trusting in, that God's power will protect you, then you would be living according to Yahweh's instructions to live justly and protect the vulnerable. You wouldn't also be going after other gods for the promises of security they claim to provide. And so what exactly are you trusting in when you say this is Yahweh's palace, Yahweh's palace, Yahweh's palace? Because it sure isn't the Yahweh part or you'd be living different lives. The people have put their trust, Jeremiah says, in the temple itself and the religious practices connected with the temple. And that's no different than putting your trust in idols. As the last verse we read says, it won't achieve anything. The same words Jeremiah uses to describe the idols the people have followed, they won't achieve anything. The temple, religious activity, has become nothing more than an idol in different form. People had come to believe that what brought them life and secured their life was their religious practice. And since that's true, well, we might as well add some other practices too. We'll do these practices at the temple, but also those other ones that worship other gods, and hopefully some of these practices will work for us, will bring us life. It's no different than today when people show up at church on the weekend, put their kids in the children's ministry so they learn to be good kids or whatever, and then go back to worshiping money and status through the rest of the week. But Jeremiah says it's the source of the life that matters because ultimately there is only one source of life and that is Yahweh. Going after emptiness instead brings only emptiness and ultimately death. Verse 8, is there stealing, murder, adultery, swearing falsely and burning sacrifices to Baal and following other gods that you didn't acknowledge and you come and stand in front of me in this house over which my name has been proclaimed and say, we are rescued. So as to do all these outrages, has it become a cave for thugs in your eyes, this house over which my name has been proclaimed? Cave of Thugs is how Golden Gate translates what is often den of robbers. This is the verse Jesus quotes when he clears out the temple. 
And incidentally, he gets in as much trouble for predicting the destruction of the second temple in his day as Jeremiah gets into for predicting the destruction of the first temple, as we'll see in chapter 26. Have we mentioned this is all a recurring cycle that just keeps on going and going? But this phrase is an interesting one because the idea is not a place where robbers all come together to plot their evil deeds together, uh, which I think is how I always kind of took it. But Jeremiah is referring to the caves in the rocky wilderness around Jerusalem, which provided a safe haven for criminals. They could do their evil deeds and then retreat to the safety of a cave, hiding themselves from the consequences. Jeremiah is accusing the people of treating the temple like that. They go out and violate God's law throughout the week. This is the point of reciting many of the Ten Commandments in verse 8. And then they come into the house of the very God who gave them those commandments and say, we're safe. I know I didn't live the way I should throughout the week, but on Sunday, I'm saved. But then God's response is in verse 12. You can go to my place. And this is the same word used for the temple a few verses back. You can go to my place that was at Shiloh where I let my name dwell before. Shiloh is the place where in the book of 1 Samuel, young Samuel is sleeping in the sanctuary when God calls to him. So go and take a look at Shiloh, God says. I used to dwell there. And look what I did to it in the face of my people Israel's evil. I will do to the house over which my name is proclaimed, the temple, in which you're trusting, the place that I gave to you and your ancestors, just as I did to Shiloh. I will throw you out from my presence, just as I threw your brothers out. Shiloh, by the way, was a ruin in Jeremiah's day. The people had fetishized the temple and religious activity, just like many churches today are betraying that they have fetishized large gatherings and religious activity. But when divorced from trust in God, those two are empty. We're good. We're in the temple. We're at church. We've got the Torah. We've got our Bibles. We've got these religious practices. We're saved. But God says it's exactly the same as any other idol. Empty, devoid of life. All the religious practices in the world are empty when they're divorced from actual trust in God, which is displayed by how we live our lives walking the path of justice and love, as Meredith said last week, that God has laid out for us. And now it should be said here, too, that doing justice can be fetishized in the same way when divorced from actual trust in God and can be just as empty. In both cases, people are using religious practice as a stand-in for what religious practice is supposed to help us with, which is to live lives that are centered around trust in God. That is where the life is. Not in the practices themselves. The practices can connect us to the life that God offers, but when disconnected from the source of life, they're just as meaningless as anything else. In verse 21, God says, basically, you'd be better off keeping your burnt offerings and just eating the meat instead of offering a meaningless sacrifice. Spend your tithe money on a vacation house or something because without lives of trust throughout the rest of the week, your money doesn't mean jack to me. And God isn't opposed to destroying the temple itself to get people's attention. That's the negative side of this message. God says to the people, I am not in the temple. There is no place, no practice that can hold me. 
I'll destroy the temple just like I did Shiloh. I'll kick you out of this land that I gave to your ancestors. I'll shut down your religious practices that you've grown so attached to that you trust in them instead of trusting in me. But to those in exile, to those whose normal religious practices are made impossible because of the circumstances of our lives today, there's another side to this message, a positive side. God says, I am not in the temple. There is no place, no practice that can hold me. Which means, of course, I don't have to be in the temple. I don't need to be doing those same religious practices that worked before, but don't anymore, because God was never held by those practices or those places. God could be here, too, wherever here is. Some server farm in Iceland or something, I think. God could be wherever God's people seek to live lives of trust. In the temple, sure, but also in exile. We go through seasons of our lives when the practices that used to connect us to God just don't seem to work anymore. When the practices that used to connect us to the life God offers when we put our trust in God seem to have been emptied of the life part. Whether because they just don't fit in the actual life we are living anymore or because they just don't seem to work like they used to for some reason. Most Christians I know who have followed Jesus for a long time have seasons like this, where they're still doing the things that used to help them feel deeply connected with Jesus, but Jesus doesn't seem to be in them anymore. Some have described that experience as a dark night of the soul, where they look and look, but God doesn't seem to be there where the life that God offers seems always out of reach. I wonder if what we're seeing in the book of Jeremiah is part of why that experience happens. That God knows that we humans have a really hard time remembering that there's nothing magic about the particular places or practices we're using to help us connect to and live lives of trust in God. And so God gives us a little nudge now and then to remind us that life is in God, not in the practices. For some of us, this current situation might be one of those nudges. The way we used to follow Jesus isn't available right now. But that doesn't mean Jesus isn't available. We aren't saved by the temple or our in-person church gatherings or our small groups or our quiet times. We are saved by Jesus. We don't get life from our prayers or our solitude or our Sabbaths or our relationships. We get life from Jesus. And we follow a Jesus who was never locked in to any of those things, which means we follow a Jesus who is here with us now, in this time, in this place, in all its strangeness and disorientation. We follow a Jesus who is ready to offer us life here and now, in the places and practices that are available to us. Amen.